Hello and welcome to series three of the Sports Burrito. I hope you guys are really excited for the new series like we are. I'm Matt Foster. I'm joined by my esteemed co-host, Mr. Luke Rook. Welcome back to season three. Welcome to any new listeners we have. And finally, I'm joined also by our lovely lanky co-host, Mr. Dan Chitty. Hello, everyone. We're excited to be back. Very excited to be back. Um, Sorry for any offence caused in the episode, uh, but let's get straight to it. Ladies and gentlemen, we'd really like to welcome you all to our third series of the Sports Burrito. Uh, we've got a really amazing guest for you this week um, to, to get this, the series off and running. He's uh, won the Rio 2016 gold with the Fiji Sevens team. He coached the England Sevens team for a long time and he's now uh, sort of a, sport, a roaming sports consultant using his expertise and wisdom everywhere. It's uh, Ben Ryan, ladies and gentlemen. Good to be here on the burrito. There we go. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> That's it. Um, so I want to start with your playing career, Ben, because I feel like that sometimes gets overlooked a touch when... Yeah, for good reason, probably. <laughs> what, uh, you, played, you played varsity at Cambridge and you had a couple of the varsity games. So what's the, what was the atmosphere in those games like back in the 90s? I feel like it's quite sanitised now. Like, yeah, it, it, was, it was... I crossed over from amateur to professional. So I think in my second year at Cambridge, professionalism was about to start. So I think in my I think in my first year it was the world record crowd for a club game. It was seventy nine thousand people there, and it was live on on the telly. And and then the second game was the first game under floodlights at Twickenham, um, and that was also a world record crowd. Um, and, and back then most of the team were post grads, and they were doing it because you know you, you couldn't make any money out of playing professional rugby, so you needed some help and getting um, getting uh, some qualifications from Oxbridge um, wasn't going to do you any harm. And um, that's what happened, really. And so, yeah, I, I love my time uh, at Cambridge. And then I went to play for West Hartlepool, in the, which was the old, is the premiership, the old first division. Um, and that was getting the very first season of professional rugby. So it was all over the place. You know, they, we didn't, you know, at West Hartlepool, we didn't really know what that looked like. So it just meant spend more time at the gym drinking tea really that that was effectively it as you can see I, I you know I don't look like I spent much time in the gym you know, doing something that I should have done so yeah that was my professional career really nice and so what was it like doing so you did uh, sports science or something along those lines while you're at Cambridge and how much do you think that yeah. sort of helped frame your so did you always set about do you want to go into coaching straight away was that something you knew about and you thought that was a particularly useful avenue into that route or yeah I think it's interesting yeah I think everyone's journey into where they get to takes lots of twists and turns I I originally had kind of grown up thinking I'd go to the Olympics as an athlete Um, I was a good junior athlete an international junior athlete Um, I ran at Tens Valley Harriers for, for a long time and went to Loughborough trying to trying to combine athletics and rugby. So that was my undergraduate degrees in sports science at Loughborough. Um, went to the halls of residence, the Holt that I'd heard Seb Co had gone to. So I wanted to go there and kind of emulate him. Um, and uh, and then when I got there, rugby kind of took over a little bit more and um, I could see how competitive it was at track and field at, at Loughborough. And I didn't like the solitary training of, of athletics, if I'm honest with you, kind of got more... Uh, driven when other people were around me so Loughborough back then were, were pretty good you know they'd won every every year in the UAU or whatever it was called back then and and, and dominated things and I, I was kind of in my in my course there were a lot of very good athletes that went on to the Olympics or played pro rugby or cricket or or whatever really and then Cambridge was post-grad and that was did my master's um, thinking I'd qualify as a teacher as well so did did a master's in educational theory 
um, and then went then went then went to play professional rugby and then got a few injuries and then ended up teaching in a inner city comprehensive in Southall um, where I was PE teacher and teaching football. That was my first coaching moment. Coaching really was coaching coaching football. Played the Christmas tree formation. You know, got the wing backs up. <laughs> It was pretty cool. I enjoyed it. And then, then from there, it kind of, I went to a boarding school in Oxford, tried to re- revive my rugby career, but it wasn't really happening. Um, so started getting into coaching and then the rugby took over really. And you moved from, so you were, obviously you started off coaching 15s when you, when you were coaching rugby and then you eventually made the mm. not necessarily natural progression into sevens coaching. Was there, was there, so you spent yeah. Newport or whatever. I was actually reading, uh, the, a 2005 article that I stumbled across that was talking about you as potentially the next Clive Woodward that someone wrote very kindly in 2005 and, and then obviously that your career path changed and you moved into the seven side of things was that an easy transition or was it something that you planned on doing or was it just like an opportunity that came up and you thought I'll give this a go that, that was kind of it it kind of was an opportunity um, I actually like reversing back a bit at St Edward's I, I, one of my kids that I taught with with Richard Branson's um, uh, kids and I remember Richard Branson said something once you know that um, if there's a job that you want to do but you can't do it just say you can do it anyway and you'll kind of work it out when you get the job and, and that was me a little bit with the sevens I felt like I knew what I was doing on the schoolboy sevens but international sevens was a little bit different so yeah I, I'd gone through all the coaching badges um, first first group of coaches on level four so I did that with people like Sean Edwards um, and then um I was at Newbury and, and we, we were very successful um, for a little club and got ourselves into the top 20 in the country. And that's when England got me then coaching. Um, I coached the England amateur 15, the old England counties um, and then different age group teams. And then they asked me to do the sevens, the sevens job. Um, there were t- originally it was the England under 20s and there were two of us going for, for the job, me and a guy called Mark Mapletoft. And then the sevens opened up and they said, look, we want you both. Ben, you got a bit more knowledge on sevens and Marquez. Um, so why don't you do that? And then we'll have a look at it in a year. And a year later, we were both happy with what we were doing. So I stayed at sevens. So yeah, 15s was always my path. And sevens came in. And then I guess everyone knows me now as a sevens coach. Absolutely. Um, and when when you uh, did first take up that England job, uh, Ben, was it something you felt immense pressure about? Or, or were you pretty comfortable? Were you knowing that England had a pretty pretty good pool of players? Um, or was it something that was quite a daunting factor, obviously taking on an international side? Well, initially I was pretty relaxed about it because I thought, well, look, England sevens, they're going to be able to call upon the best youngsters, pull in maybe some of the test boys. It should be a lot of fun, go around the world and win things. Um, but then when I got there and I realised how difficult it was to get hold of players um, and how a lot of the boys that were supposedly contracted for sevens, like Haskell and Mike Brown and... I think Ugo might have been in that in that group at the time and, and a few other really good players. Um, Chris Robshaw, um, you know, you go to the clubs to, to go, OK, right, they're coming away with us to the to Wellington, I think was the first tournament I was in charge of. And they're like, no, no, they're not. Uh, and and slowly that list of those players that look really good and you're thinking we are fully loaded for this disappeared and disintegrated until, you know, I was meeting players that turned up at the airport that, that would then get on the plane. And, you know, a week later would play for us in New Zealand because it was in this kind of transition period where they had, without being too boring, basically England rugby had decided to get these EPS agreements where they could get hold of the boys for test match 15s for a long period of time. 
uh, great for the first team, but not good for the sevens and the age groups because they kind of gave up all of their demands with the clubs for those. So I couldn't get anyone really. And then I had to go down to championship. So I kind of went to Exeter and Cornish Pirates and those sort of teams that were doing well down there. Um, and then we did, we did well again. And then that got taken away from me. So then I was looking at, you know, whoever really. And that's at that point, we then decided to go full-time contracts. And we, we were the first team in England, in, in, in the RFU to, to put people on a full-time contract. And we didn't have any choice because if we hadn't done that, we'd have, we wouldn't have had anyone to choose really. Okay. Yeah, fair, fair enough. Um, and this this question is, well, being time that I got into sevens, really, um, Dan Norton specifically I want to ask about, is he, well, he's magical to watch, absolutely unbelievable to watch, wheels, he does it all really. Is, was he one of the most naturally kind of talented players that, that you've you've coached? Yeah, definitely for England. Um, and he was another one, you know, that he was at um, Gloucester and Bristol a bit uh, Academy. He played a bit of age group. I think he was under under 18s or under 16s when I first saw him. Um, but everyone said that, he, you know, he kept getting dropped from academies effectively, you know, and um, I could see how quick he was. And he, and he and also like how well he ran. You know, you see how he runs. He's so smooth. So he wasn't just fast. You could see he, you know, it's it's actually a real skill to to run as effectively as he does. Um, so we we got him in, and um, you know he's a very different player to the one he was when he was eighteen or nineteen with us. But you could see immediately that he had a point of difference that none of the other boys had. That yeah. turn of speed and, and and hanging on to that speed when he's changing direction is a total space cadet early on, um, and. Uh, <laughs> uh, you know, keeping him focused was a difficult thing, but I enjoy, I enjoy having those sort of athletes around, you know, you don't want the ones that say yes, sir, no, sir, you know, want, you want ones that are a bit of a pain in the ass, the ones that will um, ask you questions that you feel uncomfortable about, because, you know, my honest view is that the real star players probably know more than you do as a coach. And that's what often causes problems. Those coaches don't like that. Um, but if you accept that and then try to get the best out of them, then, um, then it kind of works. And, and Nort's not necessarily had the tactical knowledge, but he certainly had the expertise and the skills. So, yeah, I'd say probably as an England player, certainly top three, uh, one of the most, the, the, the best players I've coached in, in the England setup. Good stuff. And obviously, the first few months when you moved over to Fiji as a coach, I mean, what was that sort of like transition from England to Fiji, you know, pissing it down with rain here more often than not? A lot of warm weather. I mean, going in, was it complete blank canvas and you had to go in, source the players? Obviously, they were a pretty successful team till then. They never really just gone to that next level. I mean, did you source local players there? How, how does it sort of work when you moved over? Yeah, yeah, you're right. Um, they've always, like, I, I, I you know, I, I lucky I played against Fiji when I was a player and, um, and coached against them for England. And, you know, they were mesmerising to play against, you know, and, and when you played against people like Sarevi, you, you just felt, you, you know, they were playing another sport almost, uh, the standard they did. But they'd only won World, one World Series in 2005, I think, and they hadn't won anything else. Um, and they just had no, they had no consistency in anything they did. So I came over. Um, I didn't really know, I didn't really know what to expect, to be honest with you. And, you know, a lot of this I've talked about, um, but, you know, they were bankrupt, the union, they had no money, we didn't have any players, they'd all gone overseas, there was no training base. Um, there, there, there was nothing really, except the raw talent where you're just walking around and you're seeing people playing rugby everywhere. 
you know, and they're walking in the street and it seemed like the national, um, the, the, whatever, you, you know, the national kit, like people walking around in rugby shirts, you know, someone's in a Leicester shirt walking down Suva High Street, you know, it, it's ridiculous how much they love rugby. So it's, you know, if there's one thing that you, that, that you need, that's talent. And so we had that even though nothing else existed and, and it was also politically very unstable. Um, you know, it was a military dictatorship um, and he was in charge, he was my boss. Um, so that made, for, for, you know, that was awkward. Um, yeah, loads of stuff. I didn't get paid for six months, all those sort of things. But um, uh, the players were just so talented. It was so much fun coaching them. You know, they're just, just that raw ability sometimes you realize, you know, you just, you've got to give them some structure, show them how to eat properly, show them how to train intense, tell them that actually it does matter about spending a bit of time doing some line outs and scrums and some kicking practice to get those, <laughs> you know, that those things did actually matter. And once those, once they were persuaded and once they, I got on side with them, which I, I reckon probably took me about nine months for them to trust me properly. Um, then, then, then we really started to soar. And so where does the, the love for rugby for Fiji come from? Is it school age groups? Do they, they start it from young age? Is it after work? Is it any age group play? Um, most people obviously don't have a very good insight into what sort of Fiji rugby, where it's founded. I mean, do you, do you give us some of that? Yeah, I mean, it's a national sport. Sevens is a national sport, not 15. So it's sevens is a national sport. And I guess if you take it in simple terms, it's a, it's a third world country. So not a lot of facilities and not a lot of resource. So sevens obviously is a bit easier to play than fifteens. Doesn't require as much technical expertise and and as many players. Um, and it's and it's also in this kind of festival tournament vibe. You know, you don't normally just play one team against another. There's a whole load of teams. That's very much a Fijian um, positive. You know, they love a party. They love to celebrate. They like people together in a festival. So having lots of people playing rugby is a good thing. So when you go to the villages in the mornings, they'll just they'll just get out and play for an hour. And it will be mixed. So no one's wearing the right kit. No one, it might be boys, men, girls, women, all playing together, all playing one touch. So it's one, one tackle and then turnover. So you can see, you imagine all this stuff's going all over the place, lots of offloads. The ball's a, yeah, yeah. The ball's a piece of either scrunched up T-shirt or, or a, a worn ball or, a, or a, a bottle filled with sand. So all this sort of stuff's great, all the small stuff, but the long passing's rubbish and everyone's trying to tackle up here because ev everyone's playing the ball up here. So they're the kind of disadvantages that you want to iron out. But the positives are, it's just massive chaos. They make great decisions. They tap, their communication skills are amazing and they enjoy it and it's fun. And then they had some success. So I think the first time... Uh, Hong Kong Sevens, that was the first time Fiji ever took a team away. Um, and they could first time they could then listen to a team on the radio. And then it was the first time they saw Fiji play on telly. Um, and wow. so all of those things kind of led Sevens to be more and more entrenched. And then the background is it's not kind of the clubs uh, in Fiji that play Sevens. Uh, things like the Prison Wardens team, about the best team on the island, or the police team, or the army team. Um, <laughs> you know the fire service. You know they got they got really good teams because they'll give they'll give kids jobs. So they'll be in one of the smaller little islands. Someone will watch them play, give them a job on on the islands as a police officer, play for the local police team, and then if they do really well, they'll they'll get them on a boat across to the mainland, and then they'll play for the big police team. And and the same thing with the prison wardens and everything else. I mean, I remember one time I was at a tournament and I was watching the prison wardens. And I was 
and I went, wow, this kid's really good. You know, we want to get him in the team. And they said, well, unfortunately, he is one of the prisoners. So that's not possible. <laughs> and, that, and so they'd let the prisoners play if, they've, if they're on a low sentence and they're not a threat and it's part of their rehabilitation. Um, so, yeah, wow. I mean, it's, it's a crazy bit, case. Bit, bit like The Longest Yard then, the film. The <laughs> yeah, that's it. Yeah, that's, the it. Yeah. That's, that's a good one. That's good. And, and I know you touched on it earlier about the one touch and, and the, obviously the sand in the glass. Do you think that's where the ability of the natural offloads that all of them in 15s and in 7s both have, do you think that's where it originates from? I'd say that's one of the reasons. I think it's, you kind of, you get the, uh, when I got there, I was just trying to work out everything, you know, because culturally it's so different. I'd also say third world country, um, they have this saying like Senga Mataka, which means no tomorrow. So it means that they're living in the present all the time. They're not worried about the future or worried about where their next meal is coming from and they don't hang on to anything in the past. And so it makes for a very happy group, really. You know, like we're all on our apps for calm and various other things to try and stay in the present and do our Wim Hof, all that stuff. Yeah. But the whole country is like that. But if you so if you think about it in rugby terms, that's exactly how they play, right? They'll chuck a ridiculous offload and they won't worry about the consequences of that offload. They'll just do it. And so you have to put a structure in around them to, to do that. The negatives are that, you know, if you're if you're at a hotel um, and a buffet's there, then that 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 hotel buffet might go very quickly because <laughs> they're not worried about the consequences of eating it. They're just enjoying it. Same for having a beer, you know, that might be a lot more than one beer and you're suddenly in trouble somewhere. So, so yeah, they're, they're, that's, def, that's definitely linked into just the other stuff that they do around playing in the villages. Yeah, perfect. And obviously I know you touched on it earlier on, as I was just mentioning there about the diet of the players. How was that coming from obviously England sevens? I imagine that was pretty well structured. When you went out there, was it structured at all? Or was it something that you were like, I really need to change all of this? Yeah, no, was, there was no structure. So they just eat what they could when they could really and high sugar you know so hidden sugars so you, you have a big cup of tea and um and they'll put you know a dozen teaspoons of sugar in it and and they wouldn't worry about it and and in third world countries you know sugar is in a lot of the cheap food and it's, it's highest um diabetes rates in the world are in fiji lots of amputations for all of that so there was a bit of a re-education around all that and, wow. and and also there was a cost you know you'd have kids coming or kids players coming into camp um, and just feeling, looking like they're just not not interested. And then, you know, you'd find out later that they probably hadn't eaten the day before, you know. And so wow. coming to camp, sometimes they got a boost because they had three square meals a day and um, you could see them growing, you know, literally because they were getting a great diet. And, and so, yeah, I gradually got them on better and better nutrition until by the Olympics, they knew exactly what they were taking. They were off carbohydrates. They were they understood, you know, everything that was needed to to get them in the right place. And hopefully, then they pass that down to the next generation. So there's a lot more education around that now. Amazing. Um, also, Ben, I know you, again you've touched on it there. The uh, the overcoming adversity out there in Fiji and how the players do they really do get on with it. They they love their rugby there. Um, and recently there was a clip doing the rounds um, on Twitter and, and of some players playing ahead of a cyclone, some kids running about. It was absolutely hammering it down with rain and everything. They just pushed on and played. It was a pretty overjoying clip to watch. Mm. But um, I know there was also a cyclone whilst you were there uh, during, the, well, one of the most damaging ones in history. In terms of a player reaction, was it, it, was it pretty, uh, pretty impeccable, pretty moving stuff? 
Yeah, it's a bit. It's a yeah. It, it wasn't. I, sh- I guess I shouldn't have been surprised particularly about it. Um, their their reaction to it because because um, I'd seen it previously with you know when when I don't know uh, one of the boys' wives died in camp and their reaction to it you know was almost you know right okay he'll be all right tomorrow you know give him a day and then he'll get on with it and and they really they used to things going wrong and they accept them and move on but when the cyclone hit and it was it was the 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 biggest in the site still is the biggest in the southern hemisphere um cyclone to hit anywhere and the second biggest recorded of all time when it swept through the country and luckily it kind of hit the edges so it didn't go straight through the middle but we still had to think about a third of all the villages were destroyed and and that obviously correlated with the boys, you know, that a third of their families, their houses were destroyed. And we, you know, we were on national lockdown or curfew. Um, there was, um, we all got ill on the back end of it because there was just no, you know, th- there was all sorts of things going on. It was very hot and there was no electricity and the grid was down. And, and eventually when we got back into camp, you know, they, they, they literally were like, apart, apart from looking and feeling knackered, they were really like, you know, you're speaking to one of them going, you know, what happened? You go, well, I was I was hiding in the kitchen and then realised that was about to get destroyed. So we moved to somewhere else and the whole house is gone. I was like, right, I'm really sorry to hear that. You know, they haven't got insurance or anything like that. And they're like, no, it's all right. We go to my cousins in the other village and, you know, when we can afford to build a house, we'll build a house. And that was it, you know, and that's literally how they felt about it. Nobody started, you know, feeling sorry for themselves and, um I found that really hard because that's just not, you know, Southwest London. If the electricity goes down for five minutes, literally <laughs> it's national news, isn't it? <laughs> five minutes, five minutes, even a minute, even a minute, you know, and, you, and, it's, and, and in third world countries, you're used to that happening all the time and, and, and they're used to living and breathing it. So they just deal with things much better, which for, for sport in general and for traveling makes them a really good group to work with because you know, the, the, I remember if you know if a, if a plane's delayed by three or four hours, the England team are, are not happy and they're they're kicking off, and the Fijians just did not care. You know, they're they're fine. You know, they, if they got to sleep on the, the 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 floor of the airport, they'll sleep on the floor of the airport, and it just made made them really resilient. Well, I guess that sort of segues into what I wanted to ask about next, which is uh, obviously Rio itself, and I just wanted to to sort of. I mean, so you say they didn't, they didn't need lots. They're in the, you're in the Olympic Village, which is probably one of the most overwhelming environments you could possibly find. There's however many people, however many condoms get used as that fact that always gets recycled when, whenever anyone talks about the Olympic Village. But did you think that their sort of comfortability, comfortability regardless of their surroundings, as, as a group of players, do you think that was a really helpful thing to have um, in terms of just like keeping them, obviously you didn't you let them have phones or laptops or anything as well, I believe. So you sort of kept distractions away from them. Do you think it's sort of in their sort of innate nature, like help them concentrate through an Olympic village, which might have been more distracting to other groups? Yeah, I think so. I mean, it goes into just how our culture was overall, as far as, you know, I want I, I want to make myself redundant as a head coach. So you want the players to be responsible for other things. And so you share your planning with them, you share your your thoughts, your worries, everything with them, really. Yeah. Um, and so we talked about all of this and we talked about, you know, all these various people that are going to be in the village. So we all came off media, uh, social media and we all had our phones, gave it to team manager and laptops and stuff. And we went into the village really late with the last, I think the last group of athletes who were in before they lock it down, before they then do the opening ceremony stuff and all that stuff. Um, and then we just carried, we just, for the three or four days in the village, we just worked, did everything together. Um, and you started to see people already blowing the edges at the foot in that first week, you know, in the village. 
you know, whether it's just a bit of peacocking um, around. I mean, if you go to the, the food hall, it's two football sized pitches. And, you know, you, slowly different countries are trying to get their little area that they're sitting down with and stuff. And we just thought, well, get one by the door because it's quickest way in, quickest way out. And, yeah. people, you know, but we didn't have any cameras with us or any mobiles. And you just see people still asking famous athletes for selfies. You know, you've seen Bolt's manager or a trainer would go and get his food for him because he just was getting mobbed in there. And um, and we weren't distracted like that. And and I think quite a few teams got that wrong. Um rugby especially because it's a new sport you know none of us had actually been there as as coaches or athletes I was lucky that I got put into the Olympic Village in London because they were getting me ready to potentially be the coach for Great Britain so I had some understanding of that and my dad had been to two Olympic Games in 48 and 52 and so he would talk to me about the village stuff albeit a long way a long time before but it still had some resonance I had I had an idea of what was ready and a few of my mates had been to Olympics so that all helped us really because, yeah, the, the amount of self-sabotage that can go on at Olympic Games um, is, is amazing, really. You know, and um, people, people's four years can fall away very quickly in those few days before they, they get on to whatever they're about to do. Did you have any moments, as much as you were trying to keep yourself clear of it all, did you have any moments where you saw, I don't know, like a Usain Bolt or a, I can't think of any other names right now, but you saw them and you had to pinch yourself a moment and be like, hang on a minute. Like uh, yeah. or something maybe I don't. I know. mean, like I, I ended up chatting to quite a lot to the to the US basketball team, uh, you know. And after I left Rio, I went I went to New York and spent some time with with the Knicks and and. I'm, I'm incredibly jealous. I'm a massive basketball fan, so I'm incredibly jealous of that. I'll be honest. Yeah, not if, well. I'm a Knicks supporter now, which is which is a a, a weight around <laughs> every every Knicks supporter's uh, doing you know. okay this year. Emmanuel quickly looks quite sharp off the the rookie coming in at point guard. He looks decent, to be fair. So. Yeah, although they fell apart again yesterday, like halftime lead against Jazz, and then really just did dropped off. But um, yeah, maybe I mean Brooklyn across the water um, look suddenly just scary. I mean, yeah, <laughs> scary. Um, James Harden keeps saying. yeah. And with Nash, I think he's an amazing, he's really interesting as a new coach, you know, no experience whatsoever, but he's got a CV that's amazing. And he's done a lot of kind of the GM type stuff roles in different sports. So. He's one of my favourite speakers, Steve Nash. I've listened to quite a lot of talks and podcasts with him. And he's such like a, he's a very clear thinker. And you can, like, I think that's why it's going to suit him to be in, in what is like looking at it, quite a chaotic team, that Brooklyn side. They've got three players that like having the ball in their hands. And um they don't two of them don't really like defending quite frankly so you basically yeah. got to try and sort of motivate and sort of be sort of just organize that chaos which is a difficult thing to do i think for any coach although i can imagine thinking about it, that probably translates to sevens a lot because sevens is arguably the most chaotic sport i've ever watched in terms of i mean i mean the the physical and the actual just the cardio to be honest so i watch it all, the main thing i'm thinking of is a these blokes are absolutely enormous and b their cardio just must be through that through the roof like i don't and whereas i think like there must be some level in your role as a sevens coach where you've got to be able to control that and try and make it just try and implement some kind of structure. Maybe not so much with Fiji because you've obviously got that they're just built different, literally. Mm. Um, but do you have anything to say sort of along those lines? Yeah, no, you're, you're right. You're right. Um, I mean, the American, the American boys that were the basketball players, you know, they, when they watched us play and they, and they, they did that, that they said, you know, just thought it was like basketball players playing, you know, when they see some of our six foot seven um, <laughs> forwards in the Fiji team. Um, they really enjoyed it and found it uh, hilarious uh, watching it. And um, 
yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, you know, Fiji, we definitely had clear guardrails, but I call clear guardrails that I'd have with any, any team, you know, so they knew exactly what was required of the, of them on the field, but then also you want them to allow them to do their thing. Um, so going back to that village, you know, yeah, I saw the, the dream team and, you know, people like Carmelo Anthony were there and ended up seeing him again at the Knicks. And, um, uh, I was so impressed with, with his, um, how hard he works as an athlete that perhaps is, he isn't portrayed as, um, and, and we took a Rafa Nadal, he'd hang around with the Fijian boys and they'd practice Spanish with him. And, um, and because they weren't after anything and some of them didn't know who he was, he, you know, he found that quite alluring really, and a bit refreshing. Um, and, and, but before the games, no, we just cracked on and actually kind of our boys, people would turn a bit because they were, they looked a bit different as athletes. They'd look, they couldn't work out. Most people going into the, into the villages when you sit down having food and I'd go and have a hot chocolate with my manager and other coaches in the evenings. And you could kind of go, oh, that's a weightlifter, right? That's a cyclist, massive legs, tiny arms, you know, that, that's, that's a, that's a swimmer, you know, and, and then our boys come in, you can't quite work out. People could see, I can't pin a sport on this lot because they're a bit too big to be something, but, but then why is that kid that's tiny with that kid? What are they doing? And, and so that it was, it was kind of quite unique like that. And then after we won and we'd got a lot of, a lot of people heard about the Fijian story. It kind of bubbled away in the, on the coconut wireless in the Olympic Village. Then people were asking our boys for, for signatures and photographs and things like that. And, and that was that was a cool way to kind of flip it. And they they loved they loved that. And we went to a lot of events after the after the um, seven. So I went to track and field every every day. Um, Wade Van Niekerk hang out with the team a lot, and he became good mates with Osea Kalinasau. The boys did a lot of um, prayers in the mornings and evenings called Lotu um, and Wade's very Christian as well. So he, he would go and join them and, and do that with them. So yeah, there's lots of cool little side stories, um, but it's an amazing, it's a shame what's happening now with Tokyo and what might happen. And even if it goes ahead, you know, it's going to be, it's not going to be an athletic, it's not going to be the experience an athlete normally gets. It's going to be a very much, you know, in a transactional probably relationship with Olympic if it happens. So um, yeah, so we were very lucky to, to you know, to, to, to have a taste of that, really. Sorry, and just one last thing to touch on with the Fiji uh, stuff, Ben. I know that you, you're now on the $7 bill out there. Um, you've got your own waterfall out there as well. <laughs> you're absolutely loved. Um, was it quite an emotionally tough leaving, leaving the role and leaving the country? Um, I think it's become so since really when I left, I knew I needed to, um, I just needed to, I just needed to leave like a coaches don't always get a choice when you, when you lose or when you leave and you can, you know, it's not always on your terms. And I, the way I left England, um, I, you know, I totally fell out of rugby as a result of everything that was going on with my bosses at Twickenham. Uh, and I didn't want that to happen again with, with Fiji. Um, and I had kind of, everything I'd set out to achieve I'd done I also um was going to get divorced as well so I needed to come home and sort all that out so I knew I couldn't stay in Fiji um but do I miss it now massively um my life's back in London now but the day-to-day -day, um and the lifestyle and the people there you know and um you know I gave up something pretty special really um and you know the team were were, were set up nicely for continued success really um so 
Yeah, I guess you don't have regrets in life necessarily, but it's when you think about it and think about, particularly in lockdown, where we're all locked down here and, you know, I see my mates in Fiji, they've got curfew, but only kind of 11pm till 6am or something. They're, um, they're they're pretty much up back to normal. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a pretty alluring place. Have you guys ever been to that side of the world? No, no never I have. have. I think that loads of people always rave about the Pacific Islands and how special they are. Yeah, it's an amazing place. And and like, you know, we're, you're lucky when you're there, you can hop to other places. So apart from the small outlying islands in Fiji, you've got you've got Samoa and Tonga and Vanuatu and French Caledonia and Tahiti and all these places. And Hawaii is only a few hours as well. Um, it's, a, it's just amazing, really. And it, it's just full of happy people that, um, you know, if... Uh, you know, if you if you live in there for and and you and you don't try to do an expat thing and be an expat and you actually be, try to you know behave normally as a local, then you know they really do do everything for you. So that's why I've got you know coins and notes and waterfalls and um, <laughs> and various other honors in Fiji. Um, you know, if, if they like you, they really like you. Do you yeah, it sounds like you really immersed yourself sort of in the culture there, and the way that you speak about it. It's like that the way of life. I think is so translatable to things like now when we're in lockdown a lot of people are alone and obviously lost loved ones and things and I think with the way that Fiji sort of just view things of getting on with certain things with the way the world's going I think that's probably quite a good mindset that this has happened you know we can't do anything about it we just have to get on with it and actually I think it's pretty, it's pretty refreshing to hear that mindset um, in that case yeah. and just finally obviously we've spoken about like the England team the Fiji team 15s teams that you coached. I mean, Dream 7s team, who would you sort of put in that one to seven of all the players you've coached? Oh, I don't know. I mean, if I if I was allowed to include some of the boys that I'd play, I'd coached against um, or I'd played with or with against, then you definitely have quite a few Fijians in there from the past. I mean, Serevi is still the best sevens player I've ever seen. You know, I was lucky enough to play against him twice. And then, I, you know, oh, wow. I've, got, I've got to know him a lot, you know, subsequently. Um, so he'd be in he'd be in the team and and uh, and then um, the Fijian that that doesn't they don't ever he's not the flashiest but he was the best eyed coach was Osea Kalinasau was our captain just because he's like he's hard as nails um, he'd always be the last one off the training field he'd he'd run to exhaustion you know he fainted on my shoulder a couple of times after games he, he he's an amazing talismanic leader one of those guys where everybody just stops and listens to him um, and he was kind of our glue really and he just never did anything wrong you know he, he and he led by example so he would be in that team to keep all the other probably all those other ones to bay like the New Zealander Charles Piertau that was that played against us a lot when when I was with England him and they had Victor Vito who's a back rower but he played on the wing um he yeah. they were a handful um yes. but you know we've got people like Nakarawa and Kunata there's there's so many Fijians that that could do amazing things um the Fijians always used to say, though, get, if Dan Norton was playing for Fiji, he'd score about 200 tries a season. Um, I know he's got, you know, he's got that now in about his whole career, but they'd always yeah. see him and they'd joke to him going, you'd have about a thousand if you were playing for us. And he's probably, probably right as well. Because they've always, they had in the past lacked that kind of lethal finisher, Fiji. They always have the guys in the middle and stuff. But after Thao Thao, um, Rapini Thao Thao and... Uh, um, uh, crikey, there was another one that just came off my tongue. But apart from the last, you know, in the last ten years, it's, it's yeah, Dan would have been in the team probably. It's a serious side. Uh, 
Jerry Tuai as well. Obviously, he was he was one men's sevens player of the decade. He was absolutely well unstoppable. Yeah. That Olympics, especially, that sticks in the mind to me. Not only going forwards but defensively, he's absolutely ridiculous player. Um, but yeah, m- moving on now, Ben, to the rugby X, which first of all I find absolutely fascinating as a Thanks. rugby fan, and, and well, I think we all do find it pretty fascinating. But yeah. first of all, first things first, I guess, would you deem that first tournament a success? Yeah, absolutely. Like, did we did we finish it thinking, gosh, there's loads of things that we need to improve? One hundred percent. You know, there's, there's, you know, we've been tinkering with the with the laws, just how things are done on the on the field and the flow of all of that, and how we did the one and ones and the scrums and some stuff. Yeah, there's, there's 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 tweaking of that, and then and then in the crowd as well, we want more engagement. We want for more people to know what's going on as far as information. But to go to about, I think we were 92% sellout of the O2, you know, and it's what, a Tuesday night. Um, we were thrilled and the feedback was really good. Um, so uh, the O2 weren't ready for rugby fans because they couldn't, the bars all went mental. And therefore, you know, people were waiting ages <laughs> to, get, to get beers because they hadn't just hadn't thought that there was going to be a demand for it like that. And then the women's games were a massive positive as well because they were really exciting. And a lot of people hadn't watched too much women's rugby in. Um, because of the size of the field, the women's game, in my opinion, is not still not on par with the men's in two areas: um, long passing and 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 kicking. And they're getting there, but that's not quite. They're not as good as the men. And those two things are taken out of rugby X. So you're seeing their skill set really to the fore: the evasive running, decision making, uh, footwork, passing, and um, and we saw some great games. So loved it. Uh, you know, and we've got we're really excited about how how we can make it part of the calendar going forward. World Rugby are really excited about it as well. Unfortunately, we've had two events now cancelled. I think because we were going to have it in last last October. Um, hopefully, we'll be able to get one going again um, when lockdown ends. Um, so we've been chatting to teams at the moment and looking at all the different various different venues. We also had um, a company called Two Circles that bought us out, which has meant that they bring an even more investment into it. So yeah, um, with a few tweaks, I think you'll see Rugby X back back soon. And um, yeah, we're, we're, we're really excited about it actually. I saw I saw somewhere you referred to it as sort of like a, a pickup basketball equivalent, sort of like that yeah. idea of it being sort of back and forth. There's no real distractions to it. It's just like a, a bunch of people who want to play the game going out. Obviously it's professionalized. So it's it's not quite pickup basketball, but I, I really like that comparison. When I watched it, I thought that is a, it's a pretty accurate way to describe it. Is that sort of the less formal vibe obviously it's formalized because world rugby you've got everything approved through world rugby you made sure you had all the rules set up which i think was really important mm-hmm. um but do you think having that sort of like a less formal game type where you get to see the skill sets of the players more obviously do you think that's sort of the main sort of proponent of rugby x as it were yeah i think that was a been our guiding principle because you know we're at um a massive disadvantage compared with the basketball and football where you know you can go with your mate or with nobody and you can have fun, you know, you can, you can shoot hoops one-on-one or you can kick a football against a wall or play one-on-one with a mate. And that's why those two sports are so popular. And I kept, you know, you keep thinking, right, okay, how can we dilute down rugby without, whilst retaining its core values to create as easy, as simple a game so that somebody that's never coached it, hasn't watched it, that's a teacher in a, in an inner city school, yeah. could 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 do it could could tell could, could organize it and that's always been the guiding principle um and we want to that you know so that's that's where we are and so i'm constantly trying to take stuff out of it 
Um, and then the other guys in Rugby X are telling me I can't do that. And there's a few things that I wanted to do as well that were a bit extreme. Um, so, you know, we can't do it yet. I mean, the one thing that would make the game super easy is yeah. if you could have a forward pass. I mean, <laughs> forward pass, suddenly, it's almost basketball, isn't it? It's, yeah. But, yeah. but with, with tackling, um, you know, I, I don't know where the future will take it. But, um, yeah, I know that in when I go and do some stuff um, in inner city schools and as my time when I was a teacher... Um, the forward pass and the back pass, that's the hardest thing to get things going. People understanding that, getting back on side and keeping your depth and not honeypotting around the ball. So um, we're constantly trying to think of ways to make the game as alluring as possible to people that haven't played the game before and haven't watched the game before. Um, and I think that's really important to get new fans in because if the age of a fan going to Twickenham is getting older and older every year and the sponsorship is only going to reflect that until we've got, you know, insurance now it might be funeral directors in a few years time it's kind of you know we, we if we want to protect the sport we need we need new people coming into sport to support it and to play it and i think rugby x is is a is one of those ways and that's i think one of the reasons why world rugby are, are, are behind it as well i guess it's kind of a democratization in that sense in terms of you're trying to because rugby is ultimately like historically at least it's a, it's a middle class sport played by middle class people basically um, yeah. I think it's, it's like you said it's really important I think that's why I think it's such a good project particularly because you have the, the focus is on getting into these inner city schools where kids might not have played rugby and they don't have the big posts and the expensive tackle pads and the shields or whatever else you need you just need to make it a game which a couple of kids can go chuck a ball like go to a field have a ball and have a run around with that's why I'm, I really I really think it's an excellent idea yeah I mean look there's some boroughs in London where there's maybe only one club in the whole borough maybe and it's they're pretty big boroughs densely populated we've got lots of densely populated in the city areas where kids have never you know never seen a rugby ball never watched it and and not to say that you know rugby is going to be the solution to to get people out of all sorts of different things but it's just another way to help kids and give them another tool and it's definitely alluring you know that some of the kids that I've introduced it to you know they, they don't want to play touch rugby they want to whack someone but legally within a within a set of rules that they that they have to abide by um yeah. and teamwork and all those sort of things and and you know i i, I really like all of that stuff and I, it, I want to try to get to the point where almost like i don't know if you've heard of some of the cages down in south london and east london where they play football where um a lot of the footballers have come through there playing that playing that kind of like pick up rugby and sevens in fiji or the one-on-one -on -one stuff that you might see in some of the courts around you know when i've been in new york that cage football stuff and if we can ever get close to that then we're there we know that that you know we might be changing how how the sport's being perceived. Good and obviously, like as you said, I, I know that the sudden death one v one. I really like that system. I mean, right now from the current England squad, who would you choose for your one attacker, one defender to go head to head? Good one. Yeah. Uh, well, if it was one one on one, I think Johnny May would be a handful, wouldn't he? Because he'd be yeah. very slippery operator. Was an attacker. Okay. You wouldn't really yeah. know what you were, what what was going to happen there. Um, I coached Anthony Watson when I was um, at England. He he was in the team that won the Junior Commonwealth Games, and he'd literally carved up on his own um, in that tournament. I think mean, we put fifty points on South Africa in the final, and he just he was just totally unplayable at sevens on an artificial field. He was amazing. So you'd you know when if he's fit and healthy, you'd you'd, you'd think he'd be pretty tidy. Um, 
gosh, there's so many. Ben Youngs was a very good sevens player. He played for England uh, in Hong Kong. He's the only player, I think, in that England squad that has had a full sevens cap now, which is a, which is sad. Because um, no. um, there kind of used to be a whole load of them and the other teams have a lot still. Um, mm. uh, but yeah, so so gosh, I don't, I mean, a load of that. Manny Tuilangi, he played for England in non-cap sevens games when he was trying to um, get, get um, I think when he had problems with his passport and stuff and he wasn't playing, we played him in London floodlit sevens for England. Um and he just tore it, tore the tournament apart. You can imagine him. I mean, like yeah. so he, on one on one, if he was fit and healthy, um, there's there's a there's a there's a ton of ton of them really. It makes it exciting, doesn't it? I love the one on one. Um, it's just it's just another way of just seeing someone's skills and letting them do their thing. Yeah, no, it's good. it's a really good feature. It's a really good feature. It's just so intense, isn't it? As well, it's like a real real thrilling thrilling show almost like two gladiators going head to head yeah a bit like the coliseum it's like live or die who's gonna get the who's gonna get the point that's it we want to make it a bit we're gonna change it a little bit so that we can have as fair of contests as, as possible and make it as exciting as possible so yeah we look we're doing all that moment we had we had lots of ideas to that we needed to trial and then lockdown came so we could i couldn't physically get players to try all these different ideas out but um we'll do it yeah. soon enough you, you mentioned there, Ben, you mentioned that, so it's really sad that Ben Youngs is the only remaining uh, player in the England squad that has a sevens cap. Why do you think that, or do you think there is a reason or as a coincidence, or I imagine you think there's a reason that the RFU are, so it seems like they're more unwilling to sort of supplement sevens as a, as a sport compared to some of the other uh, sort of countries around the world that play. Do you think there's a particular reason why they're unlikely to do that? Or do you think it's just sort of like a, a tunnel vision where 15s is everything and that's what their, that's what their ultimate goal is? I, th I think it all stems from that that conversation that we had 20, 30 minutes ago about the EPS. You know, that when that agreement was drawn up, it wasn't uh, creative and thoughtful enough to allow our players to have every opportunity to develop. So, you know, I don't think sevens, you know, you don't want to like take a Johnny May in the sevens for a few years, but just at the early start of his career, and we, you know, he's one of a number of players that we tried to try to get to play for, for England. Yeah. You know, you just think, well, look, he's on the pathway. Why not? Why not put him in a couple of tournaments? He gets to play against probably Test match wingers. You know, the New Zealand team, South Africa team. You know, Geo Aplons and Piertaus and Ardi Julian Severs and all those guys. You know, playing a tournament where he's probably going to have one on one against world class wingers, full stadiums, wearing England shirt, getting used to travel. Lots to be positives to be said with that. And then they go back into the clubs and they come back a better player. And that was the model before the EPS and, you know, the, your, your Ugos and your David Strettles, um, uh, crikey, there's, there's, there's so many. I mean, I, I was also the scrum half coach at the same time across the age group. So, you know, I, I brought them into seven. So Ben Youngs, Danny Care, um, Ben Foden, uh, Joe Simpson, you know, Mickey, Mickey Young, you know, all those guys, you know, they, they came in, they played a few tournaments and then they went back and then they got into the test, into the test teams. Um, and the French are now using it really well, you know, and, and they've got, you know, they capped two players that had really only played a handful of, of 15s games and they played against Italy and they would have played against, uh, against one of them played against England. The other one was injured. So yeah, it's, um, it's underutilized. But I've got a feeling that the that the current setup in England might be looking to try to change that going forward. So, so I, I don't think it's all bad news. Yeah, another example of that is is Vakatau, the the French Vakatau, who's now one of the most critical parts of that French team in the regeneration of that French 15s team. 
yeah. coming through from the seven side. So yeah, so for Verimi, you know, I, I'm a consultant for the French Federation, um, and although I haven't been able to get over there for about a year now, um, almost. Yeah, he, he's he he was brilliant, you know, and he went straight from a sevens contract to playing fifteens, pretty much. Um, he's he's got a brother in Fiji who I wanted to get in the Fijian team, who's who's also really good. Um, so I'm not quite <laughs> sure where he is, whether he's going through the French pathway or not. But uh, yeah, they've they've got some talented players in France. Shame he's injured for Six Nations now. He's out. He's having an operation. Got injured on Saturday. So yeah. It is a bit of a shame. Um, and just a wider question now to, the, to do with the state of rugby itself, Ben. I wonder what your opinion would be. But um, with players like the other day, Carl Sinclair getting done for shouting at the ref, the Joe Marler grab, uh, last Six Nations, players diving almost these days, and the Sarri salary cap. Do you think any of the, value, the core values of rugby are under threat at all? Or do you think they're just minor bumps? No, I don't. I don't um, think they are. Um, I don't know Kyle. Um, I know to say hello to him. And I know Joe coached him at under 18s. Um, and we need more Joe Marlers in the sport, if I'm being honest with you. Not agree. less. Yeah, I agree. Definitely. Um, I think, you know, yeah. And also, like, you know, I know in my time with England, and, and I'm sure it's still happening and it happens at clubs, you know, you, 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 you're told the PR people or whatever, they'll, they'll, they'll tell you, right, this is what you, you're going to say to the, to the journalists. And, and you, you don't want to do that. You want to be like NFL or NBA where the players just say whatever they want. And that's how you're going to get more stars in the game and give people more things. Yeah, players are occasionally going to say something that they shouldn't say, but can't, you know, you've got to take the rough with the smooth, really. And um, I think, yeah, you shouldn't, you shouldn't be... I think we shouldn't ever get to the point where we've got football where they treat the referee as they do. Um, so I don't think you should ever, you know... Things like Carl swearing, I think he, he should have, you know, I think bans are fair enough, absolutely. And we should be zero tolerance on all of that. And he's learned his lesson. But we, he's certainly a personality and a character that we need more of. And I think he's an amazing player. He's a role model for so many, so many kids coming through. Because um, he didn't come through absolutely. the tradition. Yeah, he didn't come through the traditional way. Um, and I think, you know, he's he's a brilliant role model. So, no, I don't think so. I think I think the game has is still a new professional sport, relatively speaking. I think we've made some mistakes. Um, I think the laws need to get changed a bit. I think that we've had too much prevalence now on breakdown and ruck mm-hmm. and stuff that's just so, well, boring. And also, it just it does never going to engage new fans because you know I could say yeah. explain to someone well this is what's this is what this what's this penalty for? And you can explain it and you, and, and you say, well, actually it's, it's kind of, he, they have broken the law, but nobody really ignore, play, plays that law anymore. And, and it's like, we haven't, we've got so much gray in our law book um, and not enough black and white. And, you know, we could argue, argue about whether you like all the various advances in football and the use of video technology and stuff, but at least it's black and white. There's not a lot of gray in any of this and basketball is exactly the same. And it means people can understand it a bit more, but in rugby, it's just so convoluted at the moment. We just don't make it simple enough. I, d- I definitely agree with that. And I, back to what you were saying about we need more Joe Marlers and Carl Sinclair, et cetera. I think, obviously, you talked, you mentioned uh, NFL and NBA players. They come out and they say whatever they like. Do you think there's that sort of force of personality and the power of personality that exists in American sport? And I think it's one of the main reasons that American sports sort of are so like, perennially successful is that people get so attached to the players 
and obviously it comes from basketball particularly to have smaller teams but people get so attached to the players and their personalities that it creates a whole nother reason to support the, to, to watch the sport or create the sport whereas in rugby you tend to be you're aligned to your team you support that team regard the, the actual players that are in there more so now I feel like England's media team have done a better job of sort of putting their players out so people get a better idea of who the players are as people but I think rugby is somewhere behind um Lots, even football, like in other sports, where they don't really let the personality of their players shine through. For example, James Haskell, I know you've been on the House of Rugby poll or whatever it is now a few times, and he's like, a, I mean, there's a bit of a marmite to him. Sometimes he says things that people don't love, but at least he's out there. He puts himself out. He has his personality going, and like, it, it generates conversation and it generates interest in the sport. And I just wondered if you thought, uh, if you had any thoughts on stuff like that, basically. No, I look 100, percent you know, and I'm a good friend of Hask, and I, you know, I think he's he was brilliant for the sport, and you know, and he. I just like that he's outspoken. He doesn't, you know, doesn't keep quiet about things or do things behind anyone's back. It's always up front and he'll tell people how he feels. And I love it. I, I think um, I see the, I've seen the good and the bad side of that in as far as like the good side. Yeah, you're right. Like take a, like, take a LeBron, the amount of Lakers fans now that just followed him from Cleveland probably. And you can build yeah. franchises around singular players and in, in small sports like, you know, Brady's just, you know, you've seen the, the impact that Brady's had now to get to another Super Bowl. Or how old is he now? 42? Something like that? Yeah. One of the Nike athletes I know in Damakan Sue is also in that team as well. And, um, and he, you know, he's he's really, you know, he's got a real personality and um, he drives so much stuff outside that's to the benefit, sets up foundations and charities. They do so much good as well. And both American sports that we talked about there, a singular franchise star can win you titles yeah you know, the way the games are set up a quarter a quarterback or you know a, a power forward or someone like you know they can win you they can win you titles rugby is a more of a team sport it's a little bit harder for one player to to drag a team through to a championship um but i do think we just need to kind of yeah let them do their thing a little bit more give them a bit more opportunity to to, to talk about themselves and, and, what, and what they can do to be honest with you so um, yeah, I'll be all, all for it, knowing that, you, you know, you're going to get a couple that are going to trip up, but it's all part and parcel of it, really. I think the, the negative side I've seen in American sport is sometimes they've got too much star power. So, you know, I know, I know, I know in soccer, yeah, I mean, I know in soccer they can, or in football, they can, you know, player power can get rid of coaches, but it's far more common in, in American football. And also, they, you know, they can, you know, I've seen players go to games in private jets and, you know, do their own thing and there's a bit more of that mentality and we don't want that to creep into rugby because we want to keep the team ethos, but we definitely need to create some more stars in what is really relatively a, a pretty small global sport. Yeah. Well, just referencing there is, I mean, Sue, the defensive end for Tampa, was, I, I originally watched him play for the Dolphins. I think it was maybe five years ago mm. um, against the Indianapolis Colts. And he was just like, like he's just like a machine. Like he was, on and off the field, I mean, on it, he's like a complete different animal. Quite aggressive, very fearful, going for a, for the kill effectively on the quarterback. I mean, what was he like off the field and what did you work work with him doing? So I haven't worked with him doing anything. Um, I know his trainer. So, um, uh, and when he came to England, he was trying to find somewhere to, when they had one of their games over in England last year, he needed somewhere to go to, to get a recovery, good recovery pool and ice bath and stuff. Um, that was helping him try to source. And when I was out in Portland, just before lockdown, actually, 
quite a lot of the NFL guys that were off season were training in the in one of the gyms with one of the Nike trainers that I'm good mates with. And he's from Portland. So so um and so we just I just listened talking to him, asking him about, you know, good stuff, bad stuff about the cultures, what what annoys him, what doesn't, what's good. And he, you know, he's he's incredibly um focused, you know, on and off the field. Yeah. I mean his his mentor is Warren Buffett. Um, you know, it's you know, he's he's got a He's got a, a big up, big ideas for for what he wants to do in the business world, and so no, just He's in those yeah, just in those very small conversations that I had with him, um, I certainly wouldn't say I know him, but in those in those conversations, I've been very impressed by him. Just how uh, and also like they were doing, they were doing like get the six o'clock sessions where they'd spend an hour stretching. You know, as a defensive end, you know, you that's, <laughs> that's pretty good going to be doing that sort of stuff. <laughs> yeah. He wasn't he wasn't smashing the weights. He was doing, you know pretty cool progressive training that was um that was gonna you know give him another couple of years probably of his career perfect and just to sort of final what we like to do we have a little feature on the burrito which is just a quick fire question yeah. um just to conclude with a few questions that we often have a few debates about um and we ask most of our guests um so i mean if you weren't a rugby coach what would you be well you know if i'd given anything i would have been I'd have been a football coach because yeah. <laughs> there's, a, there's, a, there's a lot more opportunities. There's 92 clubs in the league to start with. And then there's lots of overseas opportunities for football coaches and they do pretty well. Um, I, you know, I wish I, I wish I'd, uh, yeah, that would have been pretty cool. Um, I love my football season ticket holder at Brentford. Um, oh, uh, I don't know if, yeah, the, the bees finally, we're actually, actually, well, we, we're playing some amazing football. We've got a big yeah. game tonight again. Big game tonight against Swansea, which will be tough. You've lost some talented um, players over the last few years. You've had a Ollie, obviously Ollie Watkins, yeah, Neil Morpé. You've had, yeah. some, had some really talented. Yeah. You've looked pretty much on the brink of promotion for two or three years now, and you've got a new stadium, I believe, made that up. You just, yeah, yeah. So yeah. just before lockdown, when they let the two thousand in, I went with Michelle to to watch us play Derby. It was the worst game of the season, nil nil, terrible, <laughs> and a really awkward atmosphere because there's only two thousand people in there. You know, if you're shouting or singing, you know, it's 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 not obvious when the stadium's full. You just everyone's doing it. But when it's you and there's no one for about five seats, you just feel a bit conscious of it. And it just I don't know, mm. it's the stadium's cool. It's a great stadium. Yeah. We've got a very good team, we've got a great backroom staff. Um so there's there's all sorts of opportunities there. So yeah, if 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 I'd ever been any good at football and managed to be a football manager, I think that would have been pretty cool. Excellent. Thanks. Uh, okay, it's the next one. So you've got three people. You're stranded on an island, and you can take three people from the world of sport with you. Oof. Talk to me. Okay. Well, I'd like to learn. If I was on that island, I would have a lot of time to learn. Um, Phil Knight. I take. So he kind of counts as a founder of Nike. Good. Yeah. Nice. Uh, good book. One of the guys that I found that I that I'd really like to know more about that. Um, the way he he. I've read some really interesting stuff on how he does his team meetings and things. Is the um is uh greg popovich yeah um so um he would be he'd be someone that that is a bit of a curveball but I, i'd really like to get to know him and he's he's one of the i think he's the longest serving nba head coach he's i think 25 years in, i think or 23 years in. he's joined in 98 and they won the title in 99 when they drafted tim duncan i think so and he, he literally apparently is like he's a, a, a world um expert on red wine as well <laughs> yeah uh, i don't know if you know yeah but like literally, and he, and he owns he owns vineyards and wineries and all sorts. What apparently what it, there is it's massive in basketball now. You've got obviously uh, Dwayne Wade has his own wine rage. Uh, so does Channing Fry. 
So the, LeBron's really into it. He's setting up his own wine company as well. For some, like, there's a weird sort of correlation now between wine drinking and I think it's because after the games they all just sit down and have a glass of red together and a chat over a Bordeaux. So I know Luke and, yeah. and Greg Popovich are meant to be the, the Bordeaux experts in the NBA, is what I've read. Yeah, that's it. They can, they they can, they don't they don't have to buy a cheap bottle either from Aldi. <laughs> they? They, can, <laughs> they can uh they can go to town. Yeah, I heard Greg Popovich is literally like he's the man when he goes into New York restaurants, you know, immediately a tables for him and uh yeah, so he he'd wow. be an interesting one. Um I don't know who else there'd be really. I mean, if I went to football, uh I'd find any of the current managers I think I'd I think I'd find really interesting. Um, so whether it's Guardiola or Klopp or even Mourinho, I think they'd be really interested to talk to. But probably I'd take for a bit of knowledge, I'd take Sir Alex and find out. Yeah. Try to just empty out his his knowledge. Crips. Yeah. Yeah. You so know, I don't think I, I'm not. Ta- yeah, that's quite an old group, isn't it? I don't think we're getting off. We're not getting yeah, off yeah. that island. But um, yeah. might have to do the dog's body of the work when it comes to setting up the fires and keeping everyone alive and stuff. <laughs> yeah, that will do. Yeah, I don't mind doing that. I don't mind doing that. No, it still sounds like yeah, a brilliant, uh, a brilliant three. Next one, Ben, is your three favourite films in no particular order. Okay, uh, Clint Eastwood's uh, Gran Torino. If you've seen yeah. that, um, I, I, a long story, not for now. But I sat next to his son Scott Eastwood on a flight once, and it started the whole thing about having a film eventually which is which is in the process at the moment so Gran Torino I love that film um the original Seven Samurai um the Japanese version that's a classic love it and then it's got to be Michelle my partner will say that it's love actually that I literally can say every sent every word of it from beginning (laughs) to end but it's probably Shawshank Shawshank is another one that I probably know most of the words (laughs) You, yeah. you'd, you'd be impressed how often Love Actually actually comes up. It's a I brilliant think, you know, film. Jack Leach's favourite as well. Yeah, so, it's a brilliant um, film. One of our, all of our, we love it. We love it here. So, yeah. one of our favourites. I just, I feel like you've just mentioned the film now and I think it'd be remiss of us not to talk about that. So, is, what, what is, uh, has production been sort of slowed down in terms of the film or, or what's going on? Yeah, yeah. The, 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 the script's finished now and, um, yeah, it's, a, it's, it's all about what's been going on with COVID now and the timeline, so... How much of a say did you have in who plays you? Did you get to bit? Do you get? Uh, like, did you get sort of a, a rundown of like Brad Pitt to Cap? Not really. Up in front of me. <laughs> no, not really. I, I kind of. Um, it's been a long time, actually. I mean, I remember at the start of it, they when I saw, you signed your you sign your book rights and your life rights and everything, and and you sign it for about a two or three year deal, and then they said, oh, actually, quite a lot of people they end up never making making their films but they make their money from just keep re-signing every three years the, their life rights or book rights um i thought oh, we, we want this nailed in a year and you know three years later that's exactly what happened and yeah um because of covid but it is all it's in place the script's now been done it's based on my story and on fiji but only a small bit it's not really the book at all they use that just for some of the information but it's a story okay. that I love it. I think it's going to be amazing. Uh, we just we just want to get on with it now. So um, I, I've kind of yeah, that's not my you know you, you know I think it's important to um, you know what you know and you know what you don't know. And I don't know anything about films apart from watching them. So you know and I, and, I, and, I, and there's a guy that I trust implicitly that I, I was at Cambridge with that's heavily involved in it. And yeah, so I sit back and uh, and and they occasionally I get a message about you know this or that but they had a, a they had their recce to fiji 
last year before lockdown and that all went really well. So hopefully the, the prime minister will let us fil film in Fiji. That'll be the, the um, fingers crossed he'll, he'll be cool about that. And then, then, we'll, then we can move with that. Perfect. We love, we're yeah. looking forward to, to, to getting to watch it at some point. And most importantly on the burrito, hotly debated topic, chocolate in the <laughs> fridge or not? <laughs> um, it, it's in the fridge. I can't believe it. Yes. Good lad. Good lad. Great in the man. fridge. Yeah. So far, Great we've answer. had pretty much everyone's in the fridge, and Matt I, is Matt I, is fuming I, about it. I'm absolutely. I, I, I mean, the only, the only, the only like conduit I'd say is that conduit. The only uh, thing I'd say is that you'd have it in the fridge. I wouldn't take it out and eat it immediately. I would let it rest for a little bit. Yeah, and then yeah. I'd then I'd have then I'd take it. In the fridge in the first place, if you're taking it, out it there's always the risk that it'll be soft, and there's nothing worse <laughs> yeah, than having soft chocolate. Nothing. I mean, I'm, good I'm gonna, answer. We'll agree yeah, to disagree. You. Good answer. We'll agree to disagree. Good answer. <laughs> um, I think, well, I think that, that sort of concludes time. everything. Yeah. Great. Thank you very much. So, and Ben, thank you so much for coming on. Um, yeah, no worries. Our listeners are going to absolutely love this. Um, we've thoroughly enjoyed it. I hope you've. Uh, had some fun along the way um but most importantly thanks for coming on i have faith brilliant perfect thanks very <laughs> much ben. Ben. thanks right. so much cheers thanks very much for listening everyone we hope you enjoyed it as much as we did um please be sure to check out ben ryan's book seven's heaven about the entire uh, olympic journey with that fijian side also ben's uh releasing his podcast at the end of february so do not miss that do Totting. not miss that and i repeat don't you go missing that it's top secret. Yeah. Because We've that is information about top it. bins. Sounds massive. But um, yeah, uh, keep sending stuff in for season three. Any suggestions you've got for Would You Rathers, the old features, the gold features. And uh, well done. It's worth mentioning the January fantasy football competition, winning the Jack Leach signed hat. Well done. Val on his mail jeep. Please contact <laughs> us and we'll get that hat sent out ASAP. Doom, 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 Thanks for listening. See you next week. See you next Sayonara. week. Sayonara. Sayonara. Sayonara.